0: Good morning. We are thankful to be able to be in the Lord's presence today and thankful that you can be a part of this assembly uh, as we worship together. Now, as we look into God's Word together, I want to ask you to have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 29, as we talk about this great text that uh, almost defies really our comprehension. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 29. Of all the ways that the Bible describes God, which one's your favorite? Do you prefer to think of God as Father, as King, Creator, Shepherd, Protector, Deliverer, Redeemer, Savior? helper, rock, fortress. Out of all of those, what about consuming fire? I really doubt that most of us have that very high on our list of the ways we think about God. And yet the last verse in Hebrews chapter 12 says our God is a consuming fire. We prefer to think of him in the more positive, comforting terms such as father and shepherd and things of that nature, our Redeemer. And yet, Scripture says he is a consuming fire. And it's not the only place in Scripture that says that, by the way. You go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verse 17. We're told the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain and the sight of the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 24, which is probably the verse that the writer of Hebrews had in mind When he wrote this in chapter 12, warning Israel against forgetting the covenant, he says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Then there's Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3. When Moses was promising Israel they would have victory when they went into the promised land over their enemies, he said, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Now, earlier in the book of Hebrews, the writer had said that we can draw near to God with confidence to his throne of grace so that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So somewhere we have to balance those two ideas, don't we? The idea of God as a consuming fire and the idea that he is a God who is offering us grace and mercy in our time of need. And so when we come to the end of chapter 12, we read that he is a consuming fire, and somehow that, that doesn't quite fit with some of the other conceptions of God that we get from Scripture, and perhaps some that we have in our own minds. And so what led this inspired writer in Hebrews to describe God that way? What would make him say that God is a consuming fire? Well, all through Hebrews you have a, a sequence of warnings against turning back from Christ and returning to the law. You had some people who had been a part of Judaism and they had apparently grown up in that and they had heard about Christ and they'd become followers of Jesus, but now it's getting hard. They're being persecuted, the letter says, and it's getting to some of them, and some of them are, are thinking about quitting. Some of them are just thinking about going back. They're, they're thinking seriously about giving up and just going back to what they, what they knew before. They're thinking about committing what is described as the sin of apostasy, turning away from Christ, giving up on him completely. So the writer does two things in this letter, which, by the way, a lot of folks think is a sermon sermon. Uh, particularly chapters 1 through 12 and then 13, maybe it was kind of an, an addendum to the sermon, a comment, comment to close it off. But either way, the writer does two things throughout this sermon letter. He says, first of all, he shows them how much better it is to follow Jesus. Better is one of the favorite words of this writer in this letter. If you go through and read the entire book, Mark, every time he says better, He talks about Christ being a better high priest. He talks about us having a better covenant than the old covenant. He talks about that covenant being enacted on better promises. He says we have a better hope. He just keeps telling them things are better with Jesus. Everything about following Jesus is better, he says. But then he talks also about the consequences of turning back. For example, you look in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and he says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the message declared by angels, that's the law, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, what we have in Christ is so much greater, so much better, he says, But if people following that first covenant received a just retribution for turning back from it, how will we escape if we turn back from something even greater than that? And the answer is obvious, and he states it over and over in the letter. We won't. We can't possibly escape from it. And so all through the letter, you have warnings like that. And so you have these statements about why Christ is better, why he's superior to the law, and then they're interspersed with these warnings against going back. And the final warning comes in the text we're looking at, chapter 12, verses 12 through 29. Now, you notice he starts with a series of exhortations here. I like this first one. He says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And he's not talking about being surgeries there, okay? What he's talking about is being weak, about our faith, being timid about our faith, having drooping hands and and weak knees. And And he says, lift them. You see, we can do something about that. Sometimes we find ourselves lagging in our faith, and we know that we are, but we think, well, something needs to change. Maybe the something that needs to change is us. Because he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. In other words, if you're weakening in faith, he says, toughen up. That's simply what these people need to do. They're being persecuted. Yes, it's hard. Yes. But he says to them in another place, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I suppose you can suffer a whole lot before you shed some blood. But he says, toughen up. Get ready for it. And then he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. I hope you noticed in the scripture readings and in the songs this morning that emphasis on the holiness of God. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, put some effort into your faith. Get rid of sin and deliberately aim at righteousness. Deliberately strive to lead a holy life because you're not going to see God if you don't. So you have that exhortation. And then starting in verse 13, he says, look out for each other. Following Jesus is not a solitary activity. It's not for lone wolves. It's not something that we do by ourselves. It's something that we do in community. That's why we are a church. That's why we are an assembly. And so he says to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Did you know that you and I have a responsibility to each other? To see to it that we don't fail to obtain God's grace. There's some things we can do about that. Ultimately, of course, it's our our individual decision, but we can encourage each other. We can lift one another up. We can warn each other. We can pray for each other. We can do all kinds of things for, for one another. To see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Urge one another to correct bad attitudes, he said. Avoid immorality. And he says, learn the example of Esau. Do you remember the story of Esau from the book of Genesis? Esau was one of the, uh, the sons of, uh, the uh, brother of Jacob, one of the sons of Isaac, and he'd been out in the field hunting all day, and he came in, and his brother Jacob wanted his birthright. See, Esau was the elder brother. And Jacob really wanted his birthright, and, and so he disguised himself as Esau and went in to Isaac, their old blind father, cooked him food and went in to receive the blessing and so Isaac thinking he was blessing Esau pronounced the blessing of the firstborn and the blessing of the firstborn was a big deal the blessing of the firstborn meant that you were the leader of the family it meant that you had a double portion of the inheritance It, it meant a lot of prestige it was a really really big deal and so Jacob goes in and steals that blessing from Esau. But Esau had come in from the field when he'd been out hunting and he was hungry. He was famished. And, and he was so hungry, Jacob was cooking something there and it turned out it was a pot of soup. A pot of soup. And, and, and Esau said, Give me some of that, give me some of that soup. Jacob said, I will if you give me your birthright. Now you think about those two things, the birthright and pot of stew. And Esau said, what difference does it make about a birthright? I'm about to starve to death. How many of you have ever been so hungry you're about to starve to death? I've said it a lot of times. I'm about to starve. But as you can tell, it hasn't really happened. Okay. I said it a lot of times. I am so hungry. I'm about. I'm just starved to death. And that's kind of the way Esau was. So what's his birthright to me? Just here? Yeah, I'll give you the birthright. And and then Jacob feels that he's got the right to go steal it from him. All they got to do now is get Isaac to go along. And that's what Jacob does because Esau had traded it to him. He traded that which was invaluable for something that was comparatively worthless. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't be like that. Don't be immoral or irreligious like Esau, who sold his birthright way too cheaply. Then, beginning in verse 18, he draws a striking contrast between two scenes of worship. This is where it really starts getting our attention, because we're talking about worship. Worship. Two scenes of worship. The first one described in verses 18 to 21 is the fearful solemnity of Israel gathered at Mount Sinai when they received the law. I hope you'll go home and read Exodus 19 and 20 and you'll get the full effect of this because that's where the story takes place. Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Israel had come out of bondage in Egypt and God had directed Moses to bring them to the foot of the mountain and that's where he delivered the law. That's where he made the covenant with him. That's where he said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Here's what I expect from you. And so Hebrews 12 reminisces about that. And it says, you remember the sound of God's voice that was so frightening that the worshipers begged to not hear it again. You ever wanted to hear the voice of God? I have thought at times that would be wonderful to hear the voice of God. They didn't think so. They heard the voice of God and it scared them to death. And they said, Moses, you go talk to God. Don't let him talk to us anymore. And even Moses said, according to Hebrews 12, I tremble with fear. I tremble with fear. And they were, all of this was overshadowed by a warning that no one, not even an animal, was to touch that mountain. Keep the people back. Keep them away. If anybody even touches that mountain, if an animal breaks loose and runs over and touches that mountain, you shoot an arrow into it and kill it. If it's a person, you stone it to death. You don't touch them. You cannot come that close. You cannot approach where God is. And even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Can you imagine if church were like that, trying to invite somebody to go with you? I'd love for you to come to church with me, Sunday. You'll be scared out of your wits. And, and if you do the wrong thing, I, I should tell you, if you do the wrong thing, you'll die. That would be kind of tough, wouldn't it? But that's the scene that took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. But then look at verse 22. He says, but you, but you. He's not talking about Israel now. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. He says, but you, Christians, have come to something much better. Whereas at Mount Sinai, the order of the day was keep your distance or else. In Christian worship, we are invited to draw near. Draw near to God. That's what we're doing this morning. We're drawing near to God. They were told, don't come near. Don't even get close. If you do, you will die. We have been invited into the presence of God through his son, Jesus Christ. In Christian worship, we draw near. What we have in Christian worship is something that Israel couldn't even imagine being invited into the very presence of God himself. And the writer says, you've not come to that mountain that's blazing with fire and it's covered in smoke and it's quaking with an earthquake and it's trembling and, and the people are scared to death and Moses is scared to death. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. You come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and you've come to all the angels gathered in festal assembly. And he says, also you have come into the presence of those already in heaven. The spirits of just men made perfect, he says. And into the presence of a blood, the blood of Jesus. That speaks a more gracious word than the blood of Abel. Remember the blood of Abel, the book of Genesis says, cried out from the ground. Convicting Cain of sin. The blood of Jesus speaks from the cross and offers us forgiveness and salvation. And you see, this isn't so much that all of that is come here to be with us. That may or may not be the case. I don't know. I do believe God is here with us. I do believe the angels apparently are present with us. But it's not so much that as it is that when we worship, we're being invited to We're being invited into heaven. We're being invited into the closest experience to heaven that humans can have on this earth when we worship God. That's what we have come to, he says. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was this heavy, thick curtain that hung separating the holy place from the most holy place. And you remember the holy place was where the altar was, and the priests could go in there, and they did more than than once a day, and they offered incense, and they offered sacrifices, and so forth. But nobody could go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, except the high priest, and only once a year. And he had to be very careful when he went in, taking the proper sacrifice and following the proper procedure to offer the blood of an animal as a way of kind of providing some sort of atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that curtain, that that veil, that drape was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? It was a symbolic thing. It indicated access to God is now open. He's not hidden from you behind that curtain any longer. You are invited into his presence through the blood of Jesus, he says. And so he he makes that great statement that we are invited into his presence. But then he gives another warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that you don't refuse him who is speaking because if you do, there's no escape. There's no escaping the consequences if we refuse. When God invites folks, it isn't a choice. It isn't a choice. We are to come in. When God spoke from Sinai, the writer says, it shook the earth, but he says, there'll be another shaking. This time, not only the earth, but the heavens as well. What's he talking about? He's talking about that time when Jesus comes again. He's talking about when God will judge the earth Judge all of us on it. And he says, everything's going to be shaken then. Nothing is going to be permanent, he says, except one thing. And he says, let us therefore be grateful for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the only thing that cannot, will not, never will be shaken is God's kingdom. And you and I, through Christ, are privileged to be a part of it. And he so says, so therefore let us be grateful for receiving that everlasting kingdom, for being a part of it. That's one of the things that we're doing in worship. We're being grateful for being part of the kingdom. So looking at that contrast between Sinai and what we're invited to through Jesus, what do we do? Do we breathe a sigh of relief? And we think, Boy, I'm glad things have changed. I'm I'm so glad we don't have to be concerned about how we approach God. I'm so glad that we don't have to to think about guys like Nadab and Abihu who died simply because they offered strange fire on the altar, whatever that was. I don't know what that strange fire was, but they died because of it. And we don't have to be, we don't have to be like Uzzah. You remember Uzzah when the ark was being carried, but it wasn't being carried the way God has said and it, the oxen stumbled, and it started to fall over in the cart, and it just reached up to steady it, and he died. And we just kind of breathe a sigh of relief and wipe our brows and say, man, I'm, I'm thankful it's not like that anymore. I'm thankful that we can do whatever we want to do in our approach to God. I'm thankful that we can just sort of relax. And that's not what the writer says. He doesn't say that at all. He says, But let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You see, reverence and awe define acceptable worship. We've talked a lot in the church about acceptable worship in times past. We've talked about worship being acceptable because we've done all the right things and about worship being acceptable because we've done them in the right way. And sometimes there have been disputes about that and disagreements about that. But when this writer talks about acceptable worship, he's talking about offering up worship with reverence and awe. He's talking about offering up worship that is the opposite of irreverent or opposite of indifferent toward God, our gratitude for God's unshakable kingdom, he says ought to lead us to be so grateful for mercy and forgiveness, but it will not lead us to approach him however we want. It leads us to approach him and respond to him with reverence and awe. That's what reverence and awe are all about. Do you remember Isaiah 6? We talked about that one a week or so ago, didn't we? When Isaiah stood there in the temple and he saw that vision of God, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, and... The train of his robe filled the temple, and there were those seraphim falling back and forth and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You remember the impact that had on Isaiah? Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It was the awesome presence of God and his holiness that brought Isaiah to that realization. It did not make him think that he could become God's buddy. It did not make him think that he could just sort of do whatever he wanted to do from that day forward because one of the seraphim had touched his lips with a cold from the altar and said, your sins are forgiven. He didn't take from that. I can just go do whatever I want to. He took from that that he was to become God's humble servant. So that when the call came, who will send who will I, who who will go? Who will I send? Who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. So what does worship with reverence and all look like? Putting it into day, today's terms, we're not at Mount Sinai, we're not in the temple with Isaiah. We're here at the Glen Allen Church of Christ. Or we might be somewhere else. We might be in a a worship facility. We might be in something that isn't a worship facility or wasn't built for that. This building wasn't built for that. Built for horses. What does it look like to offer up worship with reverence and awe? Let me just point out a few things to you that are indicated in Scripture. Number one, worship that is offered in reverence and awe is attended. Now, that may sound simplistic, but it's something that's often overlooked. It is not an option in any sense. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer had said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near you see some of these folks because of the persecution had already stopped assembling together they were not coming together for worship and he says don't do that don't give up worshiping together he says you need to come together and consider how to stir each other up to love and good works we've got to be together to do that and all the more as you see the day drawing what's that day it's that day described in hebrews 12 when god will shake not only the the earth, but the heavens as well. All the more as we see that day drawing near, worship should become more and more important to us, more and more of an imperative for us. You see, a Christian should never have to decide whether or not to attend worship. Did you know that? We should never have to decide whether we're going or not. It ought to be a given that I attend worship every time I can. The only thing to decide is Whether or not I'm too ill or whether or not I I just can't can't do it for some reason. But it is not a decision that we make week by week because we have been summoned by the God who's going to shake heaven and earth to come into his presence and worship him. And to not do that indicates a lack of reverence and awe. Secondly, worship with reverence and awe is attentive worship. Can you imagine Isaiah standing there in the temple, deciding he'll just go out for a few minutes? He's got all those angels flying back and forth and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And he just sort of says, you know, I'm, I'm a little restless. And He just gets up and leaves for a little while and then comes back in. See if it's still going on. See how much near it is to being over. We can't imagine such a thing, can't we? Can you imagine Isaiah, can you imagine John in Revelation 4 and 5 when he saw God seated on his throne, can you imagine either one of them, if they had such a thing, taking out their phones, checking their emails, remembering, oh yeah, i got to send that text, because their minds were somewhere else? We can't imagine it, can we? How dare we imagine it for ourselves? You see, this is a great challenge for us, partly because we live in a society in which there is no reverence for anything. Have you notice that? There's no reverence for anything. There's no real respect for anything, societally speaking. People don't have respect for God. That's why they use his name as flippantly as they do. People don't have any respect for worship. That's why they think that anything else that you want to do is just as valid. People don't have any reverence or respect for God's word. And so we live in that kind of a society, and it presses in on us all the time. There is no sense of awe or mystery or that anything or anyone is absolutely important except ourselves and what we want. But we'd better learn reverence and awe because someday we're going to meet God face to face just like Isaiah did. Worship with reverence and awe is attentive worship. Worship with reverence and awe is active worship. You see, when we come together to worship, we are not spectators, we are not observers, and we are certainly not to come together to be worship critics. God is the spectator. God is the observer of what we are doing. He's the observer of our hearts. He's the one hearing our words. He's the one not only reading our lips, but reading our minds. And so our worship, our worship is to be active. We are to be taking part. We are to be participating in the singing. We are to be actively participating in those prayers when they're offered and listening to those words and and the saying of the amen at the end of it ought to be said by all of us because that's all of us saying yes. But you can't really do that if you haven't been listening, right? When we come together to worship, we ought to have attentive minds to the scripture, to the teaching, keeping our minds focused on God. None of us should see ourselves as passive observers in worship, we're not spectators. But above all, based on Hebrews 12, worship with reverence and awe is appreciative. It is appreciative worship. Therefore, let us be grateful, the writer says, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. Did you get the sequence there? Let us be grateful for that kingdom, and thus, as a result of being grateful for that kingdom, we will offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You see, when we are grateful to God for what he has done for us, worship is never a chore. Worship is never simply an obligation. It is never simply a box that we check off. It is the joy of our hearts, of our thankful hearts, to come together in the presence of God. And if we are not filled with gratitude, then worship will always be a chore and not a blessing. And it's intended to be a blessing. So let's apply all that to right now, to this worship service. What's going on? Is it just a collection of random songs and a few scriptures that are being read and and some prayers that are being offered? No. What should be going on, what hopefully is, is that Each heart and each mind is focused on God, just as Israel's attention was riveted to that mountain. I promise you the one thing that was going on with everybody in Israel when they were in front of the mountain of Mount Sinai that day, with all of that incredible scene taking place, God had their attention. And that should be the case with us, that we are so focused on what he is doing And so grateful that instead of being told to stay away, instead of being told to stay away, we're being told to draw near. To draw near. And as long as we do so with thankful hearts and with reverence and awe, God is accepting that worship. As flawed as it may be, as difficult as it might be, God is accepting that worship it's Walford with reverence and awe. If that's what's happening today, then our worship is acceptable to God, even though he is a consuming fire. Let's bow and pray, please. Our Father in heaven, we come to you recognizing our sinfulness and our need recognizing father your mercy and your grace and inviting us to draw near to you and so thankful for another opportunity to do so today father help us in no way in any part of our lives to refuse the one who's speaking help us not to refuse you father and help us help us to look forward to that day when both heaven and earth will be shaken but your kingdom will not And to be so thankful that we're in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're not yet in that kingdom, one of these days, everything else is going to be shaken. Everything else is going to be destroyed. But you need to be in that kingdom. But to be in it, you follow Jesus. And if you're ready to do that today, come and tell us and we will help you. Let's stand together and sing.